Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And Kobus, we're heading over to your uh, your former stomping grounds over in Cape Town at Stellenbosch University in the Center for Chinese Studies there, where Ross Anthony, who's a research fellow, joins us uh, from Stellenbosch. Thank you so much, Ross, for being with us today. Hi, Eric. Hi, Kobus. Thanks. Well, we're, we we asked Ross to come on the show today in part because the, the issue of Islamic extremism is in the news, both in China, in Africa, obviously in the United States, it's a persistent topic. And Ross recently wrote a commentary for, uh, for Stellenbosch, cementing China-Africa-USA ties through Islamic extremism. And this is a very, very germane topic today, uh, in part, as I mentioned, with what's going on in Xinjiang. Now, those of you not familiar with Xinjiang, it's the far western province of China that that is largely, up until recently, largely Muslim, uh, the Uyghur population, which is an ethnic minority uh, in China, but at the same time, a very large population there. And they've actually undergone a, a radical increase in violent terrorism. Now, it's not exactly clear as to what has prompted this, who is behind it, uh, but at the same time, it has gotten very, very bloody. Now, conversely, we have the situation of Boko Haram in both Cameroon and in uh, Nigeria, where, uh, Kobus, if I'm correct, three Chinese nationals are still being held captive by Boko Haram, uh, either in Nigeria or in Cameroon, correct? Yes, as far as far as we know. And, of course, the United States now is very actively involved in the fight against Boko Haram. News coming out today that they're setting up a new television station in northern Nigeria. Uh, the United States military, AFRICOM, is getting involved. And much of, African for, uh, of U.S. foreign policy in Africa is being driven by security. And a lot of that security is in the battle against Islamic extremism, whether it's in Djibouti, in Somalia, uh, in Nigeria, uh, Algeria, all the way through the Sahel and the northern in northern Africa. Um, so in some ways, we're seeing a convergence now of interest. And this might be one of those areas that have been long sought at the end of the rainbow where we've talked about U.S.-China cooperation in Africa. And while on trade and on other diplomatic initiatives, they don't, their interests don't always align. But in fighting Islamic extremism, it might be the one area that, uh, that the United States and China uh, can kind of see eye to eye and see their interests overlap. And Ross, am I painting a, an overly optimistic picture here in terms of that the United States and the Chinese might see their interests uh, actually collude and come together in, in places like uh, Nigeria and Cameroon and Africa in general? Um, well, I'm not uh, sure whether it's uh, going to happen or not. I mean, uh, when I wrote that commentary, it was sort of a tentative uh, avenue of where cooperation uh, uh, could be fostered, particularly because uh, the Islamic extremism problem in Xinjiang, which sort of kicked off in the 1990s, hasn't gone away. It's increased uh, since the since about since after the September 11th uh, attacks in uh, America, China sort of boldly came out with its own Xinjiang terrorist problem. Whereas before it kind of kept it under wraps, which signaled that Beijing wanted to harness uh, the the initiative that the Americans had started on the world terror to sort of gain sympathy uh, uh, for their own problem in Xinjiang. Um, uh, to what degree this is going to um, extend into uh, the African realm uh, remains to be seen. But I think uh, one crucial thing is, is that as China's investments in personnel in Africa increase, 
and of course also America's uh, 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 business interest in in, in uh, Africa increased, particularly so in the West Africa and the Niger Delta with oil. You might see uh, an overlap of commercial interests um, with these countries uh, uh, vis-a-vis the terrorist threats, are you not making it safe to invest in and whatnot. So uh, the cooperation, I think, on the one hand could be uh, uh, part and parcel of the sort of uh, global war on terror, but at the same time, I think also uh, in helping secure a safe investment environment, which uh, I think is both in America and China's interest. Uh, but to what degree uh, this will uh, continue, I'm not sure. For instance, uh, in the recent attacks in China, the American government was quite reluctant to use the term terrorism, and in a lot of Chinese blogs and social media, they're complaining about this. And then, Eventually, America did a U-turn. Uh, also, if you see with uh, Guantanamo Bay, there were several uh, Uyghur fighters captured, and uh, none of them were sent back to China, although China did ask for them to be returned to China. They were sent to third countries like Albania and Nauru and whatnot. So there, while there is a sort of uh, potential for future cooperation, there's also other issues which might diminish that, particularly human rights concerns within China, uh, Xinjiang and Tibet, for instance, particularly with Tibet, there's a strong anti-China lobby within the United States and within Congress, uh, and so uh, there might be a reluctance to cooperate with China in terms of their human rights record. Ross, I was wondering how you see this playing out in Africa. Um, the, you know, kind of obviously African countries, several African governments are very sensitive to any ideas of regime change. Um, and, you know, a lot of, of China-Africa relations are, you know, have been built on this idea of non-interventionism. Um, at the same time, China is increasingly sending um, combat troops to Africa for peacekeeping to Mali, mm. to South Sudan now. Um, and do, do you see a certain kind of back Clash brewing in Africa re- regarding this kind of uh, cooperation between the U.S. and, and China? Um, well, it depends which given African state it is and what the situation is. So, for instance, if you take Nigeria and Boko Haram, you know, good luck, Jonathan's presidency sort of hangs in the balance as to whether he can demonstrate the ability to, uh, for instance, uh, get back the kidnapped girls or whatnot. So I think in that sense, uh, uh, they would probably welcome uh, perhaps China's uh, assistance, if it was uh, uh, an America's assistance in relation to something like that, because it could probably help save his presidency if they could help him get those uh, kidnapped victims back or uh, or help quell the terrorist problem in northern Nigeria. Uh, so in that sense, you could see how it could you know, bolster um, the legitimacy of the local uh, presidency. I mean, if if it was a government which was actively aiding and abetting uh, 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 terrorist attacks, then perhaps it would be a different story, and uh, then it would be interesting to see um, how China's uh, interaction would um, uh, then uh, directly challenge the sovereignty of of a given government. So I think it really depends on the context. I'd like to pick up on Kobus's question in terms of a backlash, uh, but taking it from a different point of view. Uh, The Chinese government has recently declared a war on terror, very much in the similar vein that the United States did after 9-11. And uh, Chinese methods in Xinjiang, in some of the Muslim territories in its uh, its far west, um, listen, there's there's no way to sugarcoat it. it, They're very tough, and and to the point of being brutal, uh, they don't have any civil rights protections in China. So, um, you know, and this has now brought the attention of al-Qaeda in... Uh, certainly in other parts of the world, in the Taliban, in Afghanistan, and now is recognizing that China is becoming very aggressive. 
And I'm wondering if the Chinese will develop a reputation in the Islamic world that is similar to what the United States had and or has. And, and will that, do you think, you know, cause a blowback in Islamic regions in Africa, whether it's northern Nigeria or mm-hmm. the, 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 you know, in northern Africa? Yes, yeah, so that's a very good question, complex question to answer. I mean, I think one of the first things you need to understand about Xinjiang is that a lot of the disaffection and resentment there doesn't come from Islamic extremism. It comes from uh, what uh, the Uyghurs uh, perceive as bad Chinese policy uh, within the region. Hello, are you still there? Oh, yes, we are. Go ahead. Yes, we are. Sorry, my apologies. Yeah, uh, bad Chinese policies in the region, uh, uh, large-scale ethnic migration, um, the forbidding of religious uh, uh, practices at universities and government institutions and whatnot. This, this sense of any uh, grievance, even if, it, if it's legitimate, is painted as uh, uh, being a separatist or being anti-China. So the Chinese have not given uh, Uyghurs any platform, legitimate platform, which to express their grievances. It's always painted as something that's anti-China or pro-separatist. And in this sense, the, uh, what we see is these Islamic attacks. A lot of uh, the various uh, instances of violence which you see in Xinjiang, I don't think, uh, there's no evidence to suggest that they are linked or in some coordinated uh, is- Islamic extremist movement in Xinjiang. Well, there are certain groups that do that. I think a lot of the grievances, a lot of the violence is conflated with terrorism. And this way, uh, China, the CCP can get off the hook by saying, oh, it's all Islamic related, instead of the fact that a lot of it is a reaction to just bad domestic uh, policy. And you can see this particularly in the 2009 uh, attacks in Urumqi where 200 people were killed. It's, from what I can gather, it was largely a spontaneous uh, uh, violent outbreak which spread across the city, which wasn't uh, coordinated by a particular Islamic group. But uh, the Chinese, in sort of uh, increasingly painting this bogeyman of, an, of a coordinated Islamic uh, terrorist movement, um, is in a sense adding fuel to the sort of global spread of Al-Qaeda in a similar way that America did it. When America started talking about Al-Qaeda, suddenly all sorts of groups claimed affiliation to Al-Qaeda across the globe. And I think China is falling into the same trap by doing this, by not dealing with uh, these domestic grievances and and painting them as affiliated to Al-Qaeda. It, in a sense, this discourse, this representation starts to produce a reality in the sense that then suddenly people start claiming alpha Qaeda affiliation and whatnot. And what's really surprising is how little uh, global attention uh, the, the uh, Xinjiang region is having, how there hasn't really been that much support by al-Qaeda and other uh, uh, Islamic militant movements towards Xinjiang. But I think within recent months, the Chinese reaction, the high publicity of uh, the events that are happening there, is probably uh, 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 letting them go on a more sympathy towards the uh, um, uh, Uyghurs in Xinjiang and probably highlighting this attention in other Islamic countries uh, to the point where this might uh, spread to uh, Africa as well, which is now becoming, uh, you know, there are certain regions there, or failed state regions or uh, havens for these sorts of groups, which have links to all sorts of other places, Saudi Arabia and the Central Asian Republic. So, there is a possibility that China is, in a sense, repeating what I think were the mistakes that America did. And it is possible that you could see uh, greater attention and, uh, towards the Xinjiang region by global, uh, globally amongst Muslims. Um, and in a sense, I think this is very sad because China could, could uh, well, not easily, but they could have avoided this, I think, by more 
addressing the domestic grievances because um, the time I stayed in Xinjiang was for about 14 months. I really, uh, uh, most Uyghurs had resentments towards uh, the Chinese Communist Party in China, but they weren't based, they, they weren't necessarily attached to religious resentments or religious extremism. Most Muslims are very moderate uh, 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 Muslims, sorry, most Uyghurs are moderate Muslims. And um, I think that uh, it, it's something that actually could have been avoided uh, with, uh, if the Chinese government has listened more carefully to uh, what Uyghurs want. Um, and in a sense, ignoring it is adding fuel to this fire and the potential of a sort of global sympathy towards um, Islamic extremism within Xinjiang, uh, I think, is in an indirect way being uh, propelled by Chinese government policies in the region. Yeah, I mean, just you, it's interesting how you bring up the comparison between the United States and China. And just as President mm-hmm. George W. Bush was under tremendous domestic political pressure to respond to the 9-11 attacks, um, I think that there's a very similar type of pressure in China after the string of, of brutal attacks that have occurred. I mean, what happened in the Kunming uh, train station where a man, uh, actually a group of people, went through with, with butcher knives and, and killed, tw- I think, 28 people. Uh, it, recently in Urumqi, the capital of, of Xinjiang, uh, two cars laden with, with explosives you know, rammed into each other in a, in a fruit market where there was old people. I mean, it was just it was horrific. And these images are splashed across domestic Chinese media, forcing the government in some ways to come down with a hammer to crack down. Now, as you rightly pointed out, there's a huge context that leads up to this. Uh, but now, in some mm. ways, the government doesn't seem like it has a political choice but but it has to crack down. And I wonder, and this is again my question, is that if this crackdown will will start to define, at least in Islamic parts of Africa, that, that perception. But uh, that, again, as you said, was something that the, me, the, 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 the narrative hasn't caught on yet uh, in Africa. And in part because the Chinese are very, very restrictive about the images and the media that come out of Xinjiang. And it's not an easy place to cover. So that might have a, a comment, a point as well there. Go ahead, Kobus. Well, uh, you know, to, to my mind, one the, the major difference between the U.S. and China in, in this particular case is that there's so many more Chinese living in Africa. Um, you know, kind of this China has all of these major, you know, um, personnel-heavy, you know, kind of big projects running in different parts of Africa, and so they have a lot of Chinese workers actually resident there. Um, and of course, you know, now some, you know, it's not the first time that we've seen um, Chinese workers kidnapped. Um, we, you know, they, they were kidnapped. They were some of them kidnapped in South Sudan a while ago, and now they've been kidnapped in northern Cameroon. Um, how, how do you, Ross? How, how do you see the Chinese government actually dealing with this particular combination of of issues? You know, kind of the the globalization of of um, is Islamic extremism um, and the, the language of anti-Islamic you know kind of resistance you know kind of coming from both the US and China on the one hand and then the presence of actual Chinese people in Africa on the other yeah there's a lot of things there I think um, uh, basically the uh, I think one of the problems just first to address what Eric said uh, uh, is you're going to see an increasingly hostile attitude towards Uyghur Muslims. Of course, there's lots of other Muslim groups in China um, from these attacks, particularly because they're now happening increasingly in inner China. Most of them used to happen in Xinjiang, but now you've seen ones in in Tiananmen Square and in Kunming and whatnot. So you're going to see an increasing uh, xenophobia towards uh, uh, the Uyghur ethnic group within inner China. Um, In a similar way, I mean, I lived in Britain after the 
uh, September 11th attacks and the London bombings and this sort of racial profiling of Pakistanis and this wariness within society, um, a sort of distance. Uh, uh, this sort of thing, I think, is going to increase in Xinjiang, just uh, even informally, you know, just simply things like not allowing like Uyghurs into your taxi or allowing them to go into your hotels and whatnot. And of course, this is going to uh, further uh, polarize um, the situation um, in China. Now, uh, in relation to Kubis's, uh question, um, uh, I mean, one thing I think I find fascinating about the African context is that there's been so little violence uh, demonstrated towards uh, uh, Chinese migrants in Africa. There have been exceptions, such as Zambia, where it sort of trickled up to official policy at one level. But generally, I mean, if you look at South Africa, for instance, the xenophobic attacks here, they're not directed towards Chinese, they're directed towards other Africans. Uh, and, and a lot of the Chinese who have been kidnapped or killed in various situations, I don't think it's because they're Chinese mainly. It's because they tend to build projects in politically sensitive areas. So if you look at abductions in Sudan or in Ethiopia, uh, often uh, the government has sent them to construct things in territories which they don't really exert full sovereign control over. And there's uh, groups there uh, that uh, have beef with the government and then will abduct Chinese workers and, and local workers and whoever's in that area. And then there's a tendency for the media to spin this as, oh, look, these African countries are rising up against the Chinese or revolting. Uh, against their presence, whereas I think it's more got to do simply with uh, the different calculus of risk which Chinese companies tend to take in Africa. Um, now, with regards to the anti-American sentiment that you see amongst Muslim groups in, in Africa and, and beyond, I think this has a lot to do with American hegemony and power. Um, and I, I don't think China has reached that level on the global stage yet. I think it might increase. I mean, one thing is uh, China's soft power, I think, is relatively weak, particularly in the non-state sphere. You don't have domination, say, of Chinese uh, music and cinema uh, around the world, whereas, you know, I'm sure a lot of Al-Qaeda members watch Hollywood films and whatnot. That, that deep penetration of American uh, culture around the world uh, and the reaction to it that, that's uh, inspired in some of these places, I don't think you see that with the Chinese presence yet. Whether that will change in the future or not uh, remains to be seen. So I think the abduction of uh, Chinese workers and whatnot in Africa, we need to really be cautious. There might be a change. There might, I mean, this instance in Cameroon with Boko Haram capturing these Chinese, it might, it might be interesting to see whether this starts playing out. So, if, uh, I mean, men, for instance, uh, the, in the Niger Delta, the sort of uh, groups protesting against uh, oil there, they did say they were going to single out Chinese for attacks. There. So they made an explicit statement a few years ago about this. But uh, it will be really interesting to see if, for instance, with this Cameroonian abductions, if it had anything to, if the links had something to do with the fact that Chinese are perceived as anti-Muslim. Most Africans, I imagine, are not even, as most of the world, are not even aware right. that there are Muslims in China. And it often surprises people uh, when you tell them that China has a huge Muslim population, not just Uyghurs, but Khwai, Kazakh, and many other groups. Uh, and so I think just this general lack of uh, knowledge about China and its constituents will kind of help China in a sense uh, in not producing a global awareness of the Islamic uh, problem in uh, China. But um, if, for instance, in this uh, Cameroon instance or in other instances, there's a direct statement made saying something along the lines of we have abducted these Chinese because they are treating our Muslim brothers badly uh, in Western China, I think that might have the potential to disseminate to other acts. Um, but so far, uh, I haven't seen any explicit link on that mm, yet. Not yet. The, uh, just want to quickly close out on 
on the alignment of U.S. and Chinese interests, you know, and I, I come from the school of thought that says that the United States and Chinese militaries have, you know, a very deeply seated distrust of one another. Uh, you know, let's not forget that it was only about 40 years ago that the United States and Chinese militaries were facing off against each other in Korea. Um, today, they're, you know, not quite facing off, but at the same time, the, the, the American fleet and the Chinese fleet are, you know, within visual distance of one another in the South China Sea. And so the, the idea that they might collaborate together in any substantive way in Africa in the fight against Islamic extremism, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical. But the last two lines uh, of, your, of your column, you wrote, uh, this is now beginning to play itself out as Western and Chinese military and intelligence cooperate in far-flung corners of Africa. Despite the ideological differences between China and the West with regards to Africa, militant Islam might serve as an unlikely contender in cementing cooperation. Is that just a, a prediction, or is there any evidence that you have to support that, uh, that hope? Um, no, there's, uh, they, look, the, the, the evidence is very indirect in the sense that it happened particularly after 2000, uh, September 11th. Uh, 2001, where the Chinese started to clap their own Islamic terrorist problem. Uh, I got the Bush administration to put certain uh, Uyghur Islamic terrorists and the UN as well to put Uyghur Islamic terrorist groups on uh, a sort of list of known terrorist organizations. So I saw that as a sort of uh, general uh, thrust towards China's willingness to get involved in the sort of global threats of terror to harness their own interests. Now, I, I it, it, it's not even a prediction. It's more like just putting out feelers of of a of a tentative uh, uh, a collaboration, which may or may not have happened because there's so many variables. Not least of all, the fact that the American and Chinese militaries are generally uh, not hostile to each other, but suspicious of each other. So uh, there's lots of mitigating factors which might make this not happen. Um, for me, I think it's it really the question is what are the interests of China and America within a given African state and how they can align. So, for instance, if, you, if, 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 if uh, a, a case arose where Islamic militants started targeting Chinese companies and workers with the explicit uh, message that you are enemies of Islam, uh, and, and in the same sense lumping it with America, I think you could see a further cooperation there in terms of uh, again, you have particularly on the Chinese side, it not so much as anti-Islam, which I think is a secondary thing, but securing their uh, economic interests within a given country and their workers. Because remember, when workers are battered in Africa, this increasingly feeds back into Chinese domestic politics. Local people get angry about Chinese impotence of being able to protect their workers abroad and whatnot. And so I think for economic and image reasons within China, there might be more of a push in terms of securing their interests to collaborate on anti-Islamic uh, issues. Uh, America, uh, I think, of course, their uh, agenda, while it is also economically linked to oil and whatnot, it's a lot about uh, more of a hardcore security policy of, of, of protecting uh, uh, domestic American interests and also those abroad, I guess. So, uh, I think, in a sense, it will be an economic reason within Africa that would foster cooperation. And uh, this this is interesting in the sense as to what degree, say, Chinese companies and European and American companies and other companies uh, start to collaborate more within uh, large uh, infrastructural and uh, resource extraction projects within Africa. I mean, you're starting to see Chinese companies 
do more and more mergers or uh, not mergers, but rather cooperative work with other companies in extraction projects and whatnot. So at what point would it be where uh, it's certainly all of their interests on some big oil project or something like that? Uh, I think that uh, then you could see uh, further cooperation with them uh, in terms of this extremism if, if, if they are indeed uh, singling out uh, Chinese or linking their attacks to uh, response to Chinese domestic treatments of Muslims. Uh, um, I mean, the evidence so far suggests that Uyghur uh, Islamic groups and their connections to other parts of, uh, of the world, Central, in Central Asia they're quite strong, but beyond that they're quite weak. So, uh, so Really, it, it, it also just depends on how global uh, the Xinjiang issue uh, goes amongst Muslim communities. Well, it's one of the most fascinating aspects of Sino-African relations, and one that is definitely uh, something that we should continue to follow. The commentary is called Cementing China-Africa-USA Ties Through Islamic Extremism. You can find it over on the Center for Chinese Studies website at www.ccs.org.za. Um, and we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project, as well as on our blog over on the China Africa Project dot uh, uh, com site as well. Uh, Ross, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights today. Uh, thank you, Eric. Thank you, Kribbles. Ross Anthony is a research fellow at the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University with a very, very interesting expertise in uh, Islamic studies in China and the relationship between uh, between that and potentially the United States cooperation. It might be one area that the two actually do get together, even though uh, there's a long road ahead. So, uh, well, if people want to follow, Ross, what you're, what you're reading and, and what you're writing and, and some of your work, is there a way they can stay in touch with you online? Uh, sure. I mean, I'm I'm on Twitter, although I'm more a watcher than a producer on Twitter. But uh, most of my work is posted on the CCS website, the Central Chinese Studies website, Stellenbosch University. Uh, all work I do is linked uh, to that. Great. Well, we hope you're following us on Twitter. Uh, Kobus, uh, what, what's the best way people can stay in touch with you? Um, I'm on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter over there at uh, E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. And, of course, on the Facebook page, Kobus and I together uh, updating that page almost 18 hours a day. In fact, Kobus, the other day we actually did a full 24 hours. Uh, (laughs) So (laughs) I thought that was fascinating. So, uh, you know, I'm over here in Asia. Cobus is in Africa, so we're really getting all the time zones in between. Uh, once again, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way to do it is just look us up in iTunes. Uh, do for Look for China Africa Project. You can also listen to us uh, on your mobile device, Android and iOS. We've got apps out there. We're on Stitcher. We're on the BlackBerry Network in South Africa and on SoundCloud as well. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.